Jesus invaded that ancient temple and asserted his authority. He's invading our temple today and he's asserting his authority. And it really begs for us this question, who really is in charge of my life? And that's what we see in this text is a challenge of Jesus' is authority. In the very first section, the scribes and the, uh, the Pharisees and the powers that be at the time, they come up to him and they ask him this question, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you the authority to do them? You see, they're used to being in charge and ruling in that area. And they're not liking what he's doing. And of course, he understands the hypocrisy behind what they're asking, that they're not sincere in it. So he does a little verbal argumentative jujitsu on them and, and challenges them with, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer me this question. By whose authority did John the Baptist minister? And they knew that they were caught because the people really liked John the Baptist. So if they said he was of man, then the people would dislike him. If he said he was of God, then... Jesus will say, well, then why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you listen to his message, which is a message of repentance and turning from evil and wrongdoing and sin and turning back to God? And then Jesus goes into this next section. He really kind of answers their question by giving them this parable where he describes a man who builds a vineyard. This man didn't inherit this vineyard. And I think that's important. He, he plants a vineyard. He builds the fence. He digs the wine press. He builds a tower. And then he leases it out to tenants. And then I guess part of the lease agreement was that he would get some of the fruit of that vineyard. And so he sent some um, servants and they beat up that servant. Sent some more. They beat up those servants. It was just one after another. And then it comes up to verse Seven and eight, it says, but these tenants said to one another, because the, 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 the tenant said, well, I'll send my son to them. And they saw the son coming and they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. You see all that ideas of possession. They're trying to own and possess, be in control of what doesn't belong to them. You know, our lives are very similar to that. We didn't build our lives. We didn't build our bodies. We are God's creation. He has every right to rule over our lives just from a creation standpoint. And then going on in verse 9, he says to them after the parable, he says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? And now he's going to quote from Psalm, the same Psalm, part of the Halal. Remember the Psalms that they would read as part of the Passover festivities, the Psalm that they quoted from in the triumphal entry, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna. And the quote is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was not the this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our sight. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. So in other words the leaders are knowing man this is aimed directly at us for they perceived that he had told the parable against him. So they left him and went away. Now 
One thing I just want to make note of here is that a lot of these passages where we see the Jewish leadership just in, in the most stark and harsh uh, terms completely reject the Messiah, reject Jesus and his identity. And there is an ugly history within some of the church in the past where those texts and those kinds of things have been used to, to fuel anti-Semitism and to say that, okay, look at how Jewish people are all evil. <clears throat> I don't think we can do that. I think that's completely unfair to, <clears throat> excuse me, to the reading of the text. But more importantly, I think that what we're supposed to get from this is that Jesus is invading into our temple. And he is coming back to claim which rightfully belongs to him, doesn't belong to us. And are we going to reject? Are we going to reject the cornerstone? Are we going to be among the people that have rejected the Messiah and his rightful rule in our lives? And then going on in the next section, he's, it says that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. In other words, the leaders just keep coming after him. And now, again, we got Pharisees and Herodians, and these are two uh, Jewish groups that have very different opinions on the way the Jewish people at that time should relate to the Roman Empire. You know, remember the Romans had taken over. They're foreign invaders and they're ruling. Uh, the Jews do not have authority and control over their area. The Herodians had a philosophy of, well, let's just kind of get along with the Romans and do our best to, you know, play politics. The Pharisees were much more adversarial and wanted to do whatever they could to resist the Roman government. So here you've got typically people that would be in disagreement with one another are now unified to deal with Jesus. So they're trying to trap him. So what do they say? They came to him and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. You're like, yeah, right. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And you can see they're driving a wedge here to try to alienate a group of people. Because if he says, pay your taxes, then it's going to make a lot of Jewish people upset who are trying to resist Rome. If he says that they should resist Rome, then the Jews would be able to use the power of, the, of Caesar to come down and deal with Jesus as a potential rebel, you know, uh, fighting against Rome. And one of the things that this reminds me of is that these leaders have come to Jesus already and asserted their, asserted their own authority. Like, you can't do those things. I'm in charge of this area. This is more like a kid that goes to the sibling and says, instead of asserting their own authority, they assert the authority of the parents. Like, mom said you're not allowed to have any more brownies. Mom said you're not allowed to have any more cookies. You know, it, it doesn't have anything to do with following mom. It really is about, I want to keep the cookies so that I can eat it for myself. Right. That that's a common tactic that we see people do. And here the Pharisees are doing a very similar thing. But knowing their hypocrisy, hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So this is a Roman coin. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? 
So he's holding it up, you know, and just like today, we've got George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, others on our coins. They had the same thing. They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled. Now, there's a lot of really important things that are going on there, going on there, because, you know, with our coins today, we put people, historical figures that are important to us as a country to to honor those people. That's why they're on a coin. Now, they, they Caesar's image was on the denarius to honor him, but it was also because the Romans believed that they were a superior people uh, and they believed that the emperor was a kind of deity that ruled not just with his power and authority as the most powerful man, but, but as a God. And so for Jesus to say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and that's often where we focus. And we think about, well, okay, Christians should pay our taxes, but let's not forget the second part of what he says, which I think sums up this entire section to, to render to God the things that are God's. And that, to me, begs the question, am I willing to render to God the things that are God's? Whose image is emblazoned on me, on you, on humanity? It's the image of God. We aren't just, you know, other creatures that he's made. It's he made us in his image. And whose inscription has been written onto our hearts? You know, the Bible says that the moral code of God has been in, has been written on the hearts of all mankind, so that everyone knows what's right and what's wrong in the broadest sense, because God inscripted His law onto our hearts. So, what should I render unto God? And that brings us back to that first question: Who is really? in charge of my life? Who is in charge of this temple? Who gets to make the decisions? Who, who decides what, what I can and can't do? Brothers and sisters, I don't want to live my life the way that oftentimes people did in the ancient world with their, with their gods. You know, where the God is something that fit into this little temple over there. And if you needed to have success in business or your you know, agriculture or a safe journey across the sea. You went and you did certain sacrifices to appeal to that God. To hopefully he would give you what you wanted, what you needed. But the cool thing about it in those days is you could keep the God over there. He doesn't rule my entire life, but that's not the God of reality, the God of the universe, the God that we cannot put into a box. We respond to him. We don't live our lives in a way expecting and hoping that he will join in in what we do to make what we're doing successful or to, to pave the way in the direction that we want to go. He is in charge. And I think the next thing that we'll often ask ourselves is, okay, if I'm going to let him be in charge, can I trust him? Do I know that the direction he's going to take me is going to be good for me? Will I regret it? there be things that will be too hard that I don't want to do? Is he going to run my life into a ditch? I kind of like the control that I have. And I think we get an answer to that in the next couple of pages 
as we come to the end of Mark, we see that this God goes to the cross on our behalf. His love is so great that he will lay down his life and suffer all that we deserve, all the sin that we stored up that deserved justice. He takes to the cross on our behalf and he invites us to join him. You see, we are designed to enjoy God. We are designed to be in relationship with God, but we walk away from him constantly in our own sin. And Jesus is invading back in. He's knocking on the door and he's maybe turning over some tables and he's pushing and pulling you in ways that you may not want to go. And it's begging the question, who really is in charge of my life? Will I give it up to him really is a question. Will I let him rule my life in every way? 